Welcome to the Infinite Spark of Being podcast. My name is Keith Welsh, and in this episode, I'm going to be talking to you about what exists, what's real, and are you real? But before we get into all that, if you'd like to support the ongoing creation of the Infinite Spark of Being and all that that entails, you can do that at theinfinitesparkofbeing.com, where you can find links to both of my books, each written under the name The Infinite Spark of Being, with a third one on its way. Uh, There are also links to the merch where you can buy t-shirts, tank tops, hoodies, art prints, stuff like that, as well as a link to the Patreon uh, page that'll allow you to pledge either $1 or $5 a month to the Infinite Spark of Bean. So here we are, existence and identity. Let's get started. So I'd like to start by defining some words that we're using. Uh, You all know from previous podcasts that for something to be objectively real, it must be free of feelings, opinions, preferences, and personal taste. When something is subjectively real, it does involve feelings, opinions, preferences, and personal taste. Um, Essentially, when something is objectively real, it's free of the mind. Uh, It is an object that is basically in the room when you leave, right? When something is subjectively real, it involves the mind with its six cognitive faculties of judgment, perception, consciousness, language, memory, and thinking, all of which leave the room with you. Uh, The definition of the word exist is something with objective reality or being. Being is defined as something with existence. Um, and real quick, the problem with the word for me, problem with the word exist is that it involves an objective reality. Uh, that's where we get kind of stuck. The word identity means the fact uh, of being or uh, of being who or what a person or thing is. And just to put a bow on this, a fact is a thing that is known or proved to be true. So you start to see how these words begin to circle each other. Um, hopefully the definitions alone begin to show you the issue here. Um, you know, in, at a time where postmodernism, in my opinion, seems to be running rampant uh, as we decide to just use the wrong words for things, the reason I put an emphasis on this stuff is because language is a cognitive faculty of the mind. These words are symbols that give the mind and the nervous system context for these things, these symbols. These symbols tell the body how to feel, right? And I mean, if you dig into the collective unconscious, you can see why this matters. Um, Anyway, I'll get more into that in a bit. I'm already starting to, you know, digress. (laughs) So... um, One of the uh, constant sources, or really the only source of suffering, is the belief in a fixed or stationary I or self, um, or basically the belief that you exist. Um, Again, refer back to the definition of uh, what exists. (laughs) Uh, And this obviously gets us into a weird space because, you know, we have to begin asking ourselves, who is this you person, right? And I'd like to say that right off the bat, my intention in this episode, or anytime I talk about what exists or what doesn't exist, isn't to be trippy and weird. 
Um, my intention is to get you to look at who you think you are and who they said you were. Um, you have a lot more freedom in that regard than you think you do. Remember, the, nothing is stationary and nothing is stable, even your own identity. And I mean that in the best possible way. When we begin to see like the fluidity and the subjectivity of this, uh, we begin to see that our reality is malleable. And it's malleable due to the subjective nature of reality. Um, believe me, I know <laughs> that what I'm saying is very frustrating for some of you right now. But in this moment, just as a thought exercise, you know, maybe take the thing that you'd love to just throw in my face right now and remove your opinions and judgments from it. And again, it's just a thought exercise. It's not, you know, don't, it's not a big deal. Just, and just see it as phenomena. What would be happening if you didn't have an opinion about what was happening? And I, I don't care how extreme it is, even death. Now, when I say that, understand that I'm not saying that you aren't supposed to care and that opinions are bad. I'm just saying, as a thought exercise, start with the most extreme point of view, which would be to not care at all and use that to see that there is, in fact, subjectivity. Now, whether your biology or your current ego structure will allow that is a whole other story, but just, just see it at its most extreme. Just see the subjectivity of it, that's all. So uh, there's a legendary uh, teacher of Bodhidharma, the first patriarch of Zen, who would say the great way is easy for those without preference. And I'm getting into this because preference really ties into our identity. How attached am I to my identity? When I, if I prefer to be Keith and I prefer to see Keith a certain way, that's, you know, where we're at here. Um, I know I'm taking the long way around, but just bear with me. And this doesn't mean that, um, I don't, this doesn't mean to say that you shouldn't have preferences, right? It just simply means that when we don't become attached to our preferences, things get a lot easier. For instance, um, this is a bit silly, uh, and hopefully I'm able to make my point here, but let's just say that there's dog shit in the middle of the floor. Um, a dog definitely shit there. Of course, you'd prefer there not to be dog shit on the floor, but right now you have to pick up the dog shit, right? This is, it's there. We got to handle it, right? So, and dog shit can be a lot of things. It can be death. It can be taxes, uh, whatever. So um, let's say that you've become really angry that the dog shit on the floor and you begin ruminating on the fact that the dog shit on the floor, uh, you're bitching and complaining about this dog shit you know, you go tell your roommate or your partner, you take a photo, you send it to someone and say, I can't believe this dog shit on the floor. You're really riding this anger wave. You've become fixated and fascinated with the sensation of anger, the outrage, the adrenaline. You know, and each thought of outrage sends another jolt of energy into the system. You are at that moment attached to your preference. Your preference for there not to be dog shit there. Think of this as, say someone said something crazy. You do the same thing, right? Um, you could have acknowledged the dog shit and just picked it up and moved on. Uh, maybe even taken some steps and, I don't know, ensure the dog doesn't shit on the floor again, which would have moved you on with your day much faster. But instead, you got hooked. Now, um, non-attachment doesn't mean that we don't get hurt 
or that we don't feel loss or whatever. It just means that we don't become attached or fascinated with our feelings. Um, that fascination or fixation or attachment, whatever you want to call it, leads to ruminating. And that uh, that's how we go from being, you know, sad to being angry or resentful. We go from our primary emotion, which is sadness, to a secondary emotion, which is anger, which then leads to more nonsense. Um, and now, after all that ruminating, now we have to process our sadness and our anger. When all we really had to do at first was just work with the sadness by simply feeling it and staying with the breath, that would have allowed it to pass and we could have, you know, had a fresh perspective and done something a bit more skillful. Anyway, anyway. So uh, back to identity and who you think you are. So this, see, I take the long way around, obviously. There is an unintentional attachment to who we think we are. Um, I've told you before that the ego is a mechanism that's interested in all this identity stuff. And it's interested due to some pretty deep evolutionary needs that include the need to be a separate, important somebody. Um, but the ego needs an object. And it needs these objects to have a stationary or constant identity. It needs this uh, because these identities are symbols to the mind. The mind, again, uses symbols to send a signal into the body that the mind then reads, judges, and categorizes. So everything is a symbol. Everything from the people you love to the things that you smell and touch are all symbols. And it needs these symbols, the mind needs these symbols to be reliable. That reliability equals safety to the mind. Um, you are a symbol. Mom is a symbol. I hope I'm, I hope I'm making sense. Now, um, with that, let's go back to our widget, to, oh, sorry, our widget analogy from a previous episode. Um, if there is an object that your mind has no context for, meaning that you have no idea what it is, and I tell you what it is, uh, I tell you what it's for, I tell you whether it's good or bad, uh, then when you encounter it again on your own without me there to tell you about it, you'll experience mental phenomena in the form of thoughts and memories, uh, as well as bodily feelings, all depending on whether I told you the widget was good or bad, right? I informed you or educated you on this widget, and I used language to do that. We all know, again, that language is a cognitive faculty of the mind, meaning that language gives the mind context for the symbols it's interacting with. Well, when it comes to this widget and the attachment, all the stuff that I'm trying to talk about here, when it comes to this widget, you'll experience the description that I gave you. Your experience of that thing is my description of it. You experience my description, not the widget itself. So that description will include judgment, perception, consciousness, language, memory, and thinking, right? And what are those? Those are the cognitive faculties of the mind. Your experience of the widget is your mind, not the widget. I'll say it again. Your experience of this widget 
is your mind, not the widget itself. It's the finger pointing at the moon, right? The finger is not the moon. The finger's just pointing at the moon. Get it? So my mind gave your mind information and your mind began using that information as a template to compare and contrast. Why? Because that's what the mind does. It's a mechanism that allows the body to survive and thrive by comparing and contrasting symbols based on old data. Now, identity, existence, who are you? You are a widget. You are a symbol unto yourself. Your self-concept is telling the mind what to do with you, what context to put you in. Are you an unlovable piece of shit? Or are you a lovable piece of shit? I don't know. But who gave you the data that your mind is using to compare and contrast your thoughts, actions, and, and looks? Furthermore, show me the objective reality in that data. What about you is objectively real and what isn't? What is the data or storyline that the mind is using? What is the story about who and what you are? What do people, uh, let's, okay. If people, like people that don't know you, when they see you standing on the side of the road, which of those judgments that they're engaged in is objectively real? right? When you stand on the side of the road, what do, what, what, what's real, right? Or let's try this. Um, not that I've ever heard this, but um, are you a lot? Did someone say that you were a lot? Did they say you were hard to handle? Or are you just hard for them to handle? Do you see this exist, what exists, what doesn't exist, what's objectively real, what's subjectively real, who are you? Identity. The problem came when you used them as a source of self-worth. This wasn't intentional. It was purely evolutionary. Uh, your ego with its you know, personal importance, personal identity, and reality testing got worth out of your role in their life. So then you started using their data to make decisions about yourself. Do you see the issue here? Um, nothing about my identity exists, okay? Keith is a relative concept with no fixed or objective reality. Keith doesn't exist. The Keith identity is an invention created by the ego that allows him to feel included in a society so that he may survive, thrive, and create more Keats. However, if we flip that dial one more click, we see that Keith is a curriculum for me, the soul, to work with. He comes with a set of attractions and aversions that can either create suffering or eliminate a certain amount of suffering for the mind, right? That suffering is ultimately linked to my attractions and diversions, my karma. That's all Keith is. Now, you might have a different version of this Keith identity, right? You might find Keith useful. 
Maybe your soul can also work through some karma by using your mind's concept of Keith, see? Your identity is your karma. Uh, the way we see ourselves is part of our karma. In fact, to take it a step further, the identity of Keith that you have in your mind due to your attractions and aversions is also your karma. The identity that I have assigned to you is my karma. It's all this great hall of mirrors. Remember Indra's net of jewels. And remember, karma is neither good nor bad. It just is. It's the judgments and opinions in your mind that create the good and bad karma or skillful, unskillful karma. Again, said it a hundred times. This is all karma yoga, right? It's all spiritual practice. Life itself with its horrible beauty is a spiritual experience. And realizing that is the spiritual awakening. Realizing that life itself is the spiritual experience. That's, that's the awakening. So you start to see that the suffering really comes from your opinions. Um, our judgments, um, our mind... Uh, the suffering comes from trying to apply an objective reality to a life that's merely subjectively real and, and, and it's experienced through the mind. And again, this isn't to be trippy. It just, it's just to show you that there is space. There's wiggle room here. There is a malleable reality. Life doesn't have to be what they said it was or even what your scared small self says it is. It's scared because it's using their descriptions, their fears to describe you, you, you the widget. <laughs> They're using it to describe you to yourself, your life. You are clear light. Your essential nature is empty, pure potentiality, an empty vessel. All you have to do is begin to pour it out, fill it with something else. Easier said than done, I know, but that's where our meditation practice comes in. That's where we create space to pause, pour a little bit out, and refill it. So that's it for existence and identity. I hope it was helpful. I hope that you found this beneficial. Um, as usual, if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, feel free to reach out. I'll always respond, and as I mentioned before, uh, if you'd like to support the ongoing creation of the Infinite Spark of Being and all of its facets, please do that at theinfinitesparkofbeing.com, where there's a link to the Patreon, where you can pledge $1 or $5 a month, as well as a link, uh, a link to the books uh, and other merch like shirts, tank tops, and posters. Um, and as usual, don't forget, you can always reach out and talk to me. Some of you have learned that. Uh, we're old friends. Don't be weird about it.